for me, caring for somebody means having them on your mind in, in some form all the time and just constantly thinking about how you can support and be there for that person. Over the course of this podcast series, we have tried to acquire a rounded perspective of the care system, thinking about how it operates and identifying some of the challenges we face in order to improve the lives of people who are most excluded and marginalised. Today we look at some of the deeper issues that create the conditions that allow for people to be failed by the system. Each decision made by policymakers in Westminster and developed in the boardrooms of private companies, private equity firms and lobby groups, has a very real impact for young people in care. And as it stands, we have a system that is beholden to the interests of shareholders and market forces. What doesn't make sense to me is that on one hand, we have local authorities who are desperate to make short-term savings having never recovered from the austerity faced after the 2008 crash. But at the same time, we have companies such as Caretech, who are listed in the stock market for obscene amounts of money and whose executives are paid upwards of £1 million a year. As we discussed in our interview with Kate Morris, the privatisation of the care system has meant that the people whose interests are being served are certainly not the young people in care itself. It is devastating that private equity firms can circle over the most vulnerable in our society, the most vulnerable children who are overwhelmingly coming from poverty and quite happily make millions and millions of pounds out of their lives. I know I might sound like a broken record, as might many people who are more knowledgeable than me, but it bears repeating. Profit should not be a factor in how we care for our children. You wouldn't have it in your family, so why do we have it in ours? There are days when I wake up and I feel so hopeless at the state of the system, and for young people who have to go through their early lives feeling as if no one cares about them, when there is money flying round the stock market, basically investing in a system that simply doesn't work. Sometimes I wake up and I think of young people that I have known who haven't had the strength and the steeliness of Siobhan or Joy or others and who have fallen prey to the machine, passing through the care system, onto the streets, into prison and some who can't take it and take their own lives. How can we let a system result in record numbers of young people experiencing these outcomes and also have it be a profitable investment for private equity firms? How can we not view these lives for what they are, human, valuable and precious? 
Although some days I feel hopeless and depressed about the state of the care system, and honestly, throughout the onset and the entrenchment of COVID-19 and the introduction of statutory instrument 445, more of which we talk about next time, my faith in fixing the system has been wearing thinner and thinner. But what I forget is that there are people out there with answers. There are ways out of this. Today we zoom out a little bit and look at some of the bigger picture by thinking about what we know works for people. We discuss how a public health approach could impact young people in the care system and look at some of the work that can be done to improve the lives and the health of people in care. This episode features two amazing individuals. Alex Bax, the CEO of Pathway, which is a charity focused on supporting the homeless community and improving their lives and their health outcomes, and Grace Blakely, economist extraordinaire. Alex advocates for a public health approach, and as we know, because a disproportionate amount of young people in care end up being homeless, this conversation is essential to understanding the impact that failing young people in their early years can have on them throughout their lives and the impact it has on wider society. This conversation is illuminating in so many ways and has opened my eyes to how we can approach transforming care so it benefits us all at a structural level. Grace Blakely is a figure who has been instrumental in articulating how left-wing economics can offer solutions to the question of fixing a system that has been working in the interest of business rather than people. In our interview with Grace, she outlines how we got to where we are today and pinpoints the factors that have seen us end up with a system that can seem so vastly broken. We drill down into privatisation and think about alternative methods of structuring social care so it works in the interests of those who come into contact with it over anything else. Please enjoy this episode of Transforming Care. going i've got alex here um, welcome to transforming care um alex you are the ceo of pa- pathway that's right yeah um and uh, on the board of my fair london yeah or i don't really have a board i'm the chair i suppose yeah okay a group called my fair london um and maybe just explain a little bit about what pathway do um and your kind of where you got how you got to um, starting the project um, okay um, so pathway we're now a national UK charity independent focused on improving health and health care health outcomes for homeless people and other people deeply excluded and marginalized in British society 
So um, the way we work is in the NHS to try and influence what doctors and nurses and clinical staff actually do day to day, front line with patients. And at the same time, we try and influence the system to try and shift where money is invested, what decisions are made about what kind of care is provided to who, how, when, and try and shape what happens to, to try and make things a bit better for people in the deepest, um, darkest parts of our lovely country. What kind of people do you see passing through the system? So where we, where we started, which is a very interesting place to start in a way, is creating a specialist team in a hospital. So we created specialist complex care homeless teams for hospitals. We've got teams like that now in 11 hospitals around the country. And the staff pick up, and these are NHS staff, so they're seeing every patient they can who comes in universally, and they're looking for every patient who has nowhere to go when they leave hospital. So in a way, we could say we see everybody, but there's some very, very common themes through the groups of people we see. So homelessness, obviously. Within the group, huge amounts of childhood trauma in people's histories, huge amounts of damage and loss and distress. Interesting, a big chunk of just really, really bad luck. Luck plays a part in our lives, which is quite surprising to many people. But luck in the context of having little money, perhaps coming from a poor family, having little social support, not having had a job, and then something, you have some bad luck. You have no resources to get yourself back out. In the end, sometimes that's when you end up in healthcare. Um, so we pick up people in that position, try and do what we can during what is often rather a brief stay in a hospital to try and make things better. And I guess that kind of like touches on the kind of public health approach, thinking about luck in that we, we you know, we are all maybe um, can be exposed to bad luck, bad things can happen. We can experience mental health difficulties or we can experience a bereavement or we can experience loss of money, getting into debt or any of the many things that can go wrong in our society can go wrong, but I guess when someone is already experiencing poverty or has already had um, a uh, an ad- like an adverse childhood experience or any yeah. one of those number of things, circumstances matter and circumstances make. So there's some there's some luck at play. It just Prince Harry comes to mind. Yeah. Um, interestingly, you could see as a as a child he had a very traumatic experience. He lost his mother in a car crash. That's pretty bad. However. He had some quite interesting circumstances around him. So you could say that he maybe he's got some issues at the moment. He may well have. But I think he's probably going to be all right long term. And I don't think whatever ever happens to Prince Harry, he is ever going to end up on the street. It's just not going to happen. Yeah, even without the kind of royal safety net. Of yeah. <laughs> so he, is, he illustrates perfectly the advantage which come with privilege, or even with not that much privilege, but with having money background support, all of that stuff, and the less and less of that that is available to anyone, the more and more vulnerable anyone is to the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune damage, things which hurt, knock people down, and if there's not much around to pick them up again, then it gets really, really hard. So drawing on that, like, in what way do, do you believe, and, in, and maybe in what way do Pathway work to affect the systems that like maintain those levels of inequality I guess so one of our one of the things we focus on as a charity is to try and 
So we, we set up teams in hospitals which are uh, led by specialist doctors, specialist nurses. The lovely thing about doctors and nurses is they tend to be very highly motivated, but they're also developed and brought up in a, in a scientifically based system, if you like. So they're very interested in evidence and research. So we've found ourselves almost immediately beginning to generate research, generate research around what helps for people today in hospital, but also immediately to explore what happened, what happened before today, what happened yesterday, what happened last week, last year, what happened in your life to lead you into this position. And in a way that leads us, we hope to have some, to have helped generate some powerful influence about both how catastrophic being excluded is for people's health and how short-sighted and stupid that is from a society perspective that costs so much money and it's so damaging and harmful, but also how unfair it is because the, your chances of ending up homeless are massively shaped by the social and economic circumstances of our society. And if you like, we're beginning to generate lots of hard human health-related evidence which really, really shine a light on, on that being the fact. And... Um so interestingly, you know, this this series is about the care system, uh, like ostensibly, and the you know the levels of young people in care who go who go through prison, criminal justice system, and the number of people homeless people that I've worked with personally who have been in care is, I mean, it's unbelievable how how like nearly all of them pretty much have had some experience of. Of, of of being in care, and I was kind of wondering whether you had a perspective on how that system kind of sets you up to fail, or whether you had any perspectives on how those that like how whether there were any solutions to thinking about what like how we can stem the flow of kids coming into care. Even yeah. I think well, so at, at the grand scale it's very clear that a more equal society and a society which tolerated less poverty would lead fewer numbers of kids to end up in care because the stresses which lead to families to break down or things to go bad at home are framed by people's economic and social circumstances. It's not, not the only things which are happening, but they're massively important and they, that's what's setting up the context in which other things happen within families. So the next layer then would be to to radically transform, literally against money, the amount of money invested in the quality of care. But before that, the amount of, you could invest much, much more in supporting families before you get anywhere near care. So you could kind of dream of a far more caring society where families who are struggling a bit and kids where things don't seem to be going so well, there's just a lot of help lot of support and that would probably massively reduce the numbers of things which went wrong of course there are things like people not having adequate if you're living in a massively overcrowded home and there are five siblings sharing two bedrooms that's not good either so these these things are all connected the lack of housing overcrowding all these things put stresses on people which lead stuff to break down and young people so often are in the particularly as they're developing particularly as teenagers they're in the kind of eye of the storm which is staggeringly unfair um yeah and have to deal with with those kind of n like normal transitions in 
their you know identity formation or uh, in in just what comes with growing up but in a in an environment that is that is really damaging and can be very changeable um and their parents similarly probably struggling in circuit if you're holding down three jobs it's not going to lead you with a huge amount of time and energy to think about how to be there for your kids and you may not even be able to be there for your kids because you're just working um so all of those issues kind of lock together to create sets of circumstances which are incredibly toxic at the bottom and what we now see is the kind of retreat of children's services towards the kind of crisis end for all sorts of understandable reasons at the kind of day-to-day but it's the wrong place to be and it uh, and it uh, it seems to be like it's actually more expensive you know not just in the kind of macro cost to society but it winds up with local authorities having to pay through the nose for emergency placements that and more and more kids being taken into the care of the state and and then the care system itself being woefully underinvested and not having enough resources so it's kind of there are layers of failure all the way up and down but it starts with structural economic social factors poverty catastrophic 10 years of cuts to local authorities have led them weirdly to have to pull money out of all the nicer softer things which actually help people positively some interesting stuff from our health research. It turns out that nice, good things for people help, and bad shit things really don't help. Which is kind of do we have to do science to prove this? But the nice, soft things like access to libraries and arts projects and play projects in the summer, all of those things are just good, and those are the things which get cut because the things local government gets penalised over are catastrophic failures, the murder of a child. And the f- resource gets more and more focused at the extreme end, which is a bit like pathway. We, you could argue, focus at the wrong end. We're in hospital where it's all gone wrong, but it's an interesting place to examine what's happened. And in a way, the care system sounds like your work is examining what's happened and showing we really shouldn't be. We just don't, shouldn't start from here. We shouldn't be here. It's the wrong place. Absolutely. And I think um, there is a question in my mind then about, like, would you see the, the charity as having like quite a highly individualized kind of almost like a bespoke support package for the people who access it and then on top of that is is that a way you um of like gathering evidence for um advocating for kind of better resourcing i think that's an interesting question so with two two things come to mind there first so a huge amount of work across all of our teams and across the there's a growing set of services in the UK you could call the homeless health sector lots of mental health colleagues thinking about these issues and again we published a paper in the Lancet in 2017 with a load of academic colleagues a big review and again it's one of these studies you think do we have to do all this work to prove this but it, what it really found is that what works for people who are very excluded very psychologically traumatized damaged long-term kind of under the hammer individuals you need a multidisciplinary team around the person which has got access to all sorts of different things which might help and in the middle of that you need a relationship so you need to think about trying to create a service which can create a trusting relationship between someone who is going to stay there be boundaried but stay and keep going and all the other bits and pieces you need need to be available and called in so we spend a lot of time thinking about that 
failing regularly, but trying to make it better. And of course, the health service is boundaried by referral. There's all sorts of reasons why the NHS can't do that, but you can do it a bit better. It can help a bit. And within our teams, we endlessly try and get people to think about the relationships. Because in the end, it all comes down to trust. And unless people will trust each other, you can't really begin to change anything. I mean, it's, it, it's foundational to all the work, you know, having been a support worker in the care system, you know, it could take six months to build a relationship with someone like that is trusted, whereby you could then work with them in a way that will kind of progress them through and help them navigate uh, diff- difficult moments in their lives. And, and, and that can be kind of endlessly rewarding for both you know for both myself and for the people who I was working with so one of the things we've worked on to tr- we've created some roles called care navigators within some of our teams again it's proved very difficult to get the health system to pay for it but that's a separate problem um, we thought very early on that one of the things in order to give teams any chance of creating relationships we had to have credible people in the teams who knew what it was like and knew what it was about. So we've ended up using the language of lived experience, but we tried to recruit people who have been there, have had some of those experiences. In a hospital setting, are now well enough and recovered enough from their addictions or whatever else has been going on to be able to work today with someone coming off the street, but who absolutely can, can say, I do know what that's like. I have experienced a lot of this stuff, so talk to me, tell me what's going on. And actually, the doctor over there is a really nice guy, and he's going to help you and try and build the relationships around that straightforward credibility. Because the people coming on from the street are very, they are right in some ways not to trust anything or anybody, because that's a very rational position to take. 100%. And like, I was actually talking about this yesterday with someone who's like, actually, why, like, why would you? You know, say you've, you've been through the care system and you've had. X number of social workers, you've had X number of foster parents, you've had X, moved around children's homes number of times. What, like, why would you believe that this one person here now is going to help you? And I think that's true for the homeless community as well. Like, working in a hostel, we're actually encouraged not to build relationships with people because they wanted to get the move-ons and get the outcomes of like successful move-ons, which is another damaging thing in itself. Of course, that's very it's very complex because at the other side, again, in mental health where you have paid staff working in an organisation, the relationship that a paid member of staff forms with someone who is a client of an organisation is defined by that structure. It's, and it can get mental health colleagues endlessly talk about boundaries for those very reasons that you can't be just, you can't become someone's friend because you've got another 25 patients in the waiting room and that's and you're going to go home and that you are doing a job and that's so so organizations need to perhaps think about other structures which foster normal relationships for people which need to have the character of being normal human relationships which are not boundaried by money employment yeah and that's complicated and i i I but i I think as well there's like something to be said for just making it explicit you know and saying with the person like you know yeah this is my role i'm and you know i'm an employee and this is the boundaries that we have to set but that doesn't mean that i'm not emotionally invested in it and i'm doing it for a you know a particular reason which i think has value in itself you know some of my mental health colleagues talk about sometimes with some clients the value of 
breaking a few boundaries of your own boundaries, saying these are my boundaries, this is what I have to do, this is what I'm constrained to do. But sometimes then, consciously and thoughtfully, for somebody breaking a boundary, say, well, actually, for you, I'm going to do this extra thing because I can see that you need help with that. It's not really my job, but I'm going to do it anyway because I want, you to I want to show you that I am willing to go further than I should, but I'm still boundaried and I can't, I can't take you home. I can't, there's lots of things I can't do. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, even that can be, it just it shows that you, that you do give a shit and you're willing to go the kind of extra mile, as it were. So, you know, es establishing poverty and inequality um, and access, like lack of access to services or under-resourcing um, in communities can exacerbate mental health difficulties, can cause homelessness, um, and these things are often experienced by young people who have experienced care. I'm thinking, like, what, you know, we're, we're, we're coming off the back of an election where there, there is not going to, well, there might be some extra spending, but there's not an ideological kind of investment in communities necessarily. And I'm thinking, okay, so if they control the money, what is it like? What like what is the role of, of, of a charity to be able to influence policy? How can a charity like influence the redistribution of wealth or like? That's a really good question. It's a hard. I think if you talk to lots of people in the homeless charity sector at the moment, they're all asking themselves that question: What do we do? Um, but we've been the charity sector is used to that position, <laughs> um, so it's the usual different tools trying to find some common ground trying to find ways to describe the problem in a way which are palatable to people with perhaps more right-wing views and there are some things you can you can say you end up sometimes talking about the language of economics this is just a waste of money and that those arguments are pretty obvious and sometimes that has some traction you can, you can turn it round to the language of kind of um, shared humanity. So there's a kind of, and again, we see a conservative government talking about one nationism. So there can be a, a kind of um, top-down, patronising stance, which actually your old high Tory wants, the, the aristocrats wanted to care for their, for their people. And, and there is some of that is genuine desire to care. And if you could tap into that, what we find... I mean, what I've found personally, again, sometimes is that, um, which is what the charity sector does, lots of services do, and then if you get people to come out and start to visit and start to meet people in these positions, meet clients, meet young people, actually the reality of what's happening begins, can begin to break through and it begins to become... You can, you can look at the trajectory of quite a lot of conservative politicians actually in government. They often, not all of them, sometimes you can see them seem to tack to the left just because of the force of circumstance. They say, well, what do you, if you're not going to do these other things, what are you going to do now? Because otherwise, so we, quite a lot of work in the homelessness sector, the Bureau of Investigative Journalism has been counting and publicised the number of bodies on the street, people dying on the street. And plainly, we can see the government is exercised by that problem. And, w and we know that ministers have kind of have begun to kind of rush around a bit, going, oh my God, what are we going to do? We've got to stop. I mean, it's politically embarrassing. We can't have this. What are we going to do? So pol clever policy officials come back with a plan to stop this.
I mean, I've, I, what I'm hearing you say and in, is in a kind of compassionate and diplomatic way, actually there needs to be pressure put on the government yeah. through whatever means, you know, that takes. I fear, so again, the longer term perspective. So we've, again, colleagues at UCL have done some work looking at adverse childhood experiences and the wider, we want to do some more work to look at the long term health impact of austerity, but looking interesting work looking back at recessions and those kind of politics of the 1980s stored up literally were kind of investments in rapid declines in human health and increases in misery and despair which we can see in the US now 10 years of austerity has been an investment in a cohort there was a cohort of people whose lives are likely to not go so well who are going to come at the system and that the government won't be able to hide from that because it's going to come at them and then they'll have a number of choices to what to do about that. But to some extent, the circumstances will, which is back to the bodies on the street, come at them. And that's and that the kind of circumstances, the actual the reality of how, how the country feels. And again, we saw, in it, which is where the election was somewhat depressing, we saw that um, in the homelessness sector, kind of home counties, shire counties, there are places around the country who are now kind of saying to their often conservative MPs, we've never had homeless people in our town before. What's what's going on in our country? We didn't have we didn't have this before. How can this be? And you can stay for a while though it's because he's a hopeless individual and it's his fault. But after a while that's not it doesn't it doesn't ring true anymore because the people keep and if you fix one and there's another one and you fix that one and there's another one you're going to have to begin to look a little bit upstream to work out where are these people coming from and as soon as you do that you've opened up these broader questions as to what the causal chains are and I think so I think so, so it's a bit of a grim analysis but I think circumstances don't look great I mean it sounds hopeful to me <laughs> which is maybe sad because it that what you've done for me there is like be able to take what is a pretty dire situation and uh, project a kind of hopeful image of how a response to that could. You know, I think it's worth bearing. Be so, so politicians, nearly all politicians, do go into politics. I mean, there's all sorts of things being a politician about ego and all sorts of stuff. But they also, it is a public service thing. People do have a motivation. And most of them don't want to be a bad person, ultimately. And there is a kind of humanity in, in I'd say, nearly all of them. <laughs> um, and that's those circumstances, again, it's, it's why bringing people out to visit is so important. So we're endlessly trying to invite people to come and spend a morning with a team in a hospital to see what, what difficulties are coming in off the street. And it's quite an eye-opener when you go to one of our MDT meetings in a London hospital and out of 25 people on the list, six of them have failed suicide attempts. That's quite dark. And the obvious question is, why are all these people trying to kill themselves? Well, it's um, not that complicated. Um, all right, that, that's fantastic. Thank you um, for that insight, because I think it's really valuable. And it, and it allows uh, for a kind of perspective that that is not necessarily always thought about in the care system either, as well as the homelessness sector, because people are so reactive and have to respond to crisis so much. And, and it's nice to kind of think about the the root causes of that from a from a kind of systemic uh, systemic level. So, 
I was one. Uh, just kind of lastly, I guess. Um, what what is like your perspective on, or it, do you have a perspective on the kind of privatization of care and and where that kind of intersects with um, the you know proliferation of of inequality? I think that's a good question. It's a bit. It's a big question. So privatization means lots of different things to different people um, on the one hand some of the loveliest and best services we see in all sorts of bits of the kind of social sector are very often some of the smaller charities where the service users, the clients, the young people have got the most control and are most close it's not too big, everybody knows each other. It can have those characteristics of being more familial, if you like, and relationships can be better. And it's very hard for the state to replicate. You just can't, you can't really see yourself doing that in a bureaucratic state system. However, of course, the, the value of bureaucratic, the reason bureaucratic states were set up was to protect citizens in terms of equity so that whatever happens, because there won't be a lovely, fun, funky charity with a great team for everybody. So there's a tension there. So you, the flip side, the bad end of privatization, and we see that as some organizations get big and become acquisitive and start bidding for contracts because they want the income, and then they get into all kinds of business practices which militate against those kind of positive cultures. So there's a, it's more to do with organizational scale and than, than I'd feel about who actually owns it. I think if it's owned by some American venture capital company, then very, very definitely you're going to have a shit culture. <laughs> but if it's below that, the state... I mean, some local authorities have really tried to, to, to create services like that, but it's very hard for them because they also have legal duties about law and all sorts of stuff. So you and they're just such massive institutions as well. They're very di like to change the culture in the local authority seems very, very difficult. And so the local authorities, I think, have a crucial role to try and think about fostering that nice ecology of lovely local services. Who they also will have to inspect and have to do all those kind of regulatory things, but to let some of those services the challenge for local government and for the NHS as well is you have to let those services lead but then sometimes there's some people who don't fit in any of those services and for the state those people still remain the duty of the state to look after so the state in the end which is right has to step in where nobody else will and that's tricky and in the end I mean we've seen it with the probation service being privatised and it, I mean everyone recognises absolutely bonkers hopelessly stupid but partly it was more to do with the way they tended it and businessified it with contracts and performance so it's just not, not well I mean like and that. that's and that's kind of as well the, the um like how I've seen the the care system and the, and the provision of services go is like you 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 win a contract and whoever can kind of provide the service for the least money will get that contract and it and it becomes this like race to the bottom bidding war and there's a very so there's a have you the inverse care law is something perhaps to think about tudor hart published a paper in the late 60s famous doctor to, to describe the inverse care law and he said that the provision of care in any system seems to vary in inverse proportion 
to the level of need. That is, that the people with the least need get the most care, and the people with the most need get the least care at a system level. And that's very famously described as the inverse care law. He had a second clause which says, and that, that law, this propensity for systems to vary like that, is exacerbated the more and more you expose any system to market forces. So market forces have the effect of driving marketized providers to where the volume is, to where the profit, to kind of, they have to focus on turnover and targets and all sorts of stuff which, which militate against doing something extra special, odd, particular for someone who's a bit difficult or challenging because they don't fit. They're going to cost you more than your average and you're not, you're not allowed and you can't. So market forces, it's not exactly privatization because who owns it? That's a separate question, but it's the, it's the marketizing of things which makes lead services to be constrained and end up doing bad things, I think. Amazing. I'd, I'd not heard of that, um, that law, so that's really, really interesting. And, and I think rings true, and it almost replicates the, the kind of what the public health approach says in that, you know, if you have people with the less need, i.e. the people with the most stuff, if something bad happens to them, have the most resources around them to... They push in, they can argue with the doctor and say they want a second opinion, they can do all that sort of stuff. Whereas, and again, if you look at the provision of state finance, people who go to university get more state money spent on them than the people who don't. There's a, there's a slight kick in the numbers. People who end up going to prison for a long time actually get quite a lot of investment by the state in them. But you could say it's, it's plainly the wrong kind of investment. Um, but um, apart from that, this law is quite strong. Um, I, I, what you just said reminded me of something someone told me the other day um, in terms of pushing to the front, you know, being able to push to the front and demand kind of the doctor see, is that you should always hold yourself with the uh, attitude of a mediocre white man. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and and yeah. the confidence of a mediocre white man, and that will get you. I think there's a very interesting there, which we see amongst. So you can see in people who, are, who have been come entrenched into the position of being perhaps homeless or stuck on the street, is that, that, that one of the ways to try and get something or some attention is to kick off, because nothing else has ever worked. So you get these intensely, huge amounts of quite understandable anger which again the service is going oh my god well, why, why aren't you a nice polite middle class person and, and I, I guess that kind of pathologizes people's behaviour and, and that's why you see such high like uh, uh, diagnoses of like personality disorder and stuff which I'm not even sure what it is you know oppositional defiance disorder I, don't, I mean I think I might have that again we, I remember years ago doing some work where we looked at, at oppositional defiance we looked at the re- the the relative diagnosis of different disorders in children and we found that things like um, what's the reading thing people have where you can't read terribly um, dyslexia 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 tends to be a thing which is very di- heavily diagnosed up the social spectrum yeah oppositional defiant disorder and conduct disorders heavily overdiagnosed down the social spectrum if these things have any kind of organic cause that can't be the case so plainly there's an effect there which is about the circumstances of the young people and their parents and what's happening and the labels having being labeled as dyslexic in school quite early actually gets you extra resources you get more support it's great um, 
being labelled as having conduct disorder gets you sent out, excluded, put in excluded, yeah. and excluded, and that's and it, and it's that kind of like uh, that's I've the inverse care law. I've been thinking, uh, I've been learning a little bit about like narrative therapy and like how you're what you what you are told and what you tell yourself about your identity is then will be kind of manifest in your behaviour. So again, like with a lot of homelessness, uh, people who are experiencing homelessness or people who've been through the care system, they're pretty much told like, oh, you're you're worthless. Yeah. You're being told that from day dot. And then you internalise that and you, you're testing that. You're testing that out to some extent. Again, the, 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 the lovely thing about young people is that things are not set and people can change and people can move through that. That's a huge opportunity. As we age, we get more and more, literally, I'm a, I'm a, we get more and more stuck psychologically yeah. as to who we are. So young people are still beautifully fluid and able to change, which is a lovely thing. Um, and it is amazing, and they're willing to kind of, I mean, it, it, it's typified in, in the, the kind of snowflake generation and when I say snowflake I mean like the kind of older conservative white man who is, gets offended at anyone being the slightest bit different you know and they can't see that difference is something that should be celebrated mm. not something that to get like terrified over mm. um, whereas young people are amazingly flexible psychologically yeah. in, in who they accept you know yeah yeah um, which I think is really powerful. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, let's. Um, I think we'll leave it there. Great. It's been a uh, been forty minutes. It's been a fascinating discussion. Thank you so much for Thank you. joining. This I've enjoyed the music in the background. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Apologies <laughs> for that. Um, we are live on location. <laughs> um, but yeah, thanks a lot. Really appreciate cool. it. Thank you. So, yeah, I guess we'll just kick off. Um, but, yeah, so I was, I guess the first thing I w wanted to ask you was, like, what, what is financialization um, and how has it impacted on the social care sector? So, whether that be like children's social care or adult social care or just generally public services in general? Yeah, so financialization, the kind of academic definition is the increasing role of financial motives, financial markets, financial actors and financial institutions in the operation of the international and domestic economy. Basically, what that means is bigger banks, bigger other financial institutions, so hedge funds, private equity, um, asset managers, playing a much more significant role in all different areas of the economy. 
Um, and you can break that down in a number of different ways. So in my book, I look at how um, financialization has affected all um, different, uh, the different kind of areas of, of aggregate demand that Keynes identified when he did his research. Um, so that's basically consumption spending by individuals, investment spending by businesses, government spending and international trade. And you can see the ways in which when you look at any one economy, when you look at the global economy, financialization has affected each of these different areas. So you've had the financialization of, uh, of the household, which has led to um, rising kind of private debt, rising household debt. There's this kind of regime that we refer to as privatized Keynesianism, which is basically where you replace private debt. Uh, that households take out for state spending. So you just kind of uh, assume that, you know, say when you have um, economic difficulties or when you get kind of rising inequality, rather than dealing with this through state spending, you're encouraging individuals to take on debt themselves in order to both kind of secure their own financial um, stability and also boost uh, spending to kind of boost the economy as a whole. Um, you're also starting to see the rise of what's called kind of asset-based welfare, so rather than having, again, the state provide social security or, um, you know, public services or, uh, or common public assets like housing, for example, individuals are encouraged to purchase those assets themselves, again, often using debt uh, and rely on those kind of individually owned things. So rather than having a state pension, you'll have a private pension pot and that will the size of that will be reflected by how wealthy you are. The same sort of thing with with the housing system. Um, so, you know, you might be uh, the government will encourage people to kind of own their own homes and to uh, use that wealth to cover any risks that they might experience over the course of their lives. So that can, you know, help to provide for their pension. It can, you know, help to provide for various other things. Um, and yeah, that obviously provides an excuse for the state to retreat from the provision of a lot of those services and actually say to individuals, you should be basically looking after yourselves. So that's one one way in which it kind of interacts with public services. The second one, I won't go into too much detail on this one, but it's the financialization of, of businesses, of corporations. Um, and this is basically that kind of the institutions that own businesses, so that own all the shares in these corporations, um, are increasingly separated from the people that manage them. So often you've got big asset managers, you know, pension funds, hedge funds, et cetera, private equity that own big stakes in some of our biggest corporations. And they basically say, look, your only responsibility is to maximize profits so that we can make as much money as possible. And what that does is it leads to kind of lower standards, lower wages, even lower levels of, uh, of investment amongst big businesses um, because they're focusing on distributing as much money as possible to shareholders. And then finally, you have the financialization of the state, which is probably the most relevant to discussing um, this, uh, you can also see a form of privatized Keynesianism here, because again, rather than that kind of Keynesian model of state spending to deal with uh, downturns or to provide public goods, uh, you see private companies undertaking spending on the state's behalf. Um, and so you can see this with, for example, the private financing initiatives, but you can also massively see it in the care sector. And in many ways, you know, the care sector, the financialization of, of the care sector is reflected in all of these different areas because first you have households being financialized so they're increasingly having to rely on their own resources to pay for things like end-of-life care secondly you have the financialization of corporations so private care companies are often owned by big private equity firms 
uh, we did some research on this IPPR actually that showed that a huge number of the UK's care companies are owned by private equity companies that rely on these uh, companies to basically provide them a massive rate of return, which, you know, basically serves to enrich a, a tiny number of very wealthy people and basically it extracts from um, from the public sector. Uh, and at the same time, you have the government uh, permitting this model to spread and actually encouraging this model to spread. So rather than providing these services itself, it's saying to these companies, even those ones that are, you know, owned by these really extractive financial institutions, you need to be providing providing this care um, and we're not going to really set any particularly high standards. We just want to make sure that you can make as much profit out of it as possible. And obviously, this, uh, these, all these trends are linked to a lot of changes that you've seen in the care sector since um, the 80s. So uh, the kind of um, reduction in wages for staff, the kind of de-skilling of staff um, along with that, um, as well as, you know, a lot of... Um, a lot of care companies are effectively kind of acting like basically big real estate companies. They're trying to maximize the return on uh, on the investments that they are undertaking. And they're taking all of that money out of those corporations and dishing it out to their shareholders. Um, so there are a lot of, you know, there's a, a lot of ways in which you can see this kind of trend um, of financialization showing up in, in the care sector. Thanks. That's really clear. Um, and... I mean, you know, just from my experience, I think the Cambian Group own most of, like, children's care. And I think they are just... I, I always thought they were just, like, a company that built railways. I always see the Cambian Group. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, I think with a lot of these things, I think is the private equity firms will just invest or will just buy up these... They'll have like a, a a number of different kind of operations, I guess. Um, I think another one is called Care Tech, who mm. own like millions and millions of pounds of um, services. I guess is that what you would call like the race to the bottom? Like in yeah, terms you, of you could see it in those terms. Um, I mean, so yeah, you're right to point out that you know a lot of these big companies they don't necessarily you know that, that are buying up ownership stakes in. Um, sorry, that are buying up uh, like segments of the market in the care sector. They don't necessarily have expertise in that one area. Some of them obviously do, but others are simply trying to buy as many assets, maybe just as many assets in the public sector as they possibly can based on the expected returns that they're able to generate. And obviously, you know, when you're investing in the social care system, uh, perhaps not so much today when there's a bit more uncertainty, but, you know, 10 or so years ago, you'd be thinking in an environment where a lot of other companies aren't making that much profit, this is somewhere that, you know, it's backed by the state, uh, it's backed by local authorities, it's backed by some public spending. That is going to be stable, even when the rest of the economy isn't. Obviously, we have an aging population, demand is going to be increasing. You're looking at that and you're thinking, this looks like a pretty good investment opportunity. Um, but as you said, the problem is, is that um, these companies are only focused on on maximizing their profits. They're focused on, on literally pulling as much value, as much money out of the system as they possibly can because that is the only you know goal that they have as corporations is to maximize their profits um so obviously you know you do get situations where you know sometimes you see um if not the actual active ignoring of regulations then companies trying to skirt around or avoid certain regulations that are inconvenient you also see uh, often care for residents for those in social care deteriorating, the quality of care deteriorating because you have staff that are paid far less, 
often on very insecure contracts and companies will find various other ways of making sure that, um, that they are basically spending as little on staff as possible because that's often the biggest expense. I think there's something as well around that, um, like having worked in hostels, like adult hostels for homeless uh, community, but also for um, hostels for kind of young homeless people between the age of 16 and 18, is that which which kind of starts much earlier on where there just aren't the staff like that the, they can't mm. the, even like even charities can't like you know they can't afford to pay people or or skill people up or train people in the numbers that they need so they're relying on agency staff who have little little to no training whatsoever mm. in filling those gaps and i think that's kind of i mean it seems it well working in it you kind of think oh this is just like there's not enough people who want to do this work so they've got to like fill these gaps but when you look when you kind of zoom out a little bit you're like well if we're not valuing those people in the first place and we're not kind of um creating an environment where people aspire to be you know caring for people um or looking after the homeless or trying to eradicate homelessness or trying to help people who aren't able to be cared for by their parents then then that seems it, all, all of a sudden it seems intentional you know i think that's a really important point which is that it's not the case that we are we don't pay this work these workers well because they are unskilled right this is obviously a highly skilled um uh profession you know you need to be able to manage some very difficult patients often um it's often you know strenuous physically uh, emotionally obviously it takes a significant toll you know there are obvious significant skills that have to be built up at any level, not to mention, you know, higher levels of management. The reason that people aren't paid enough is obviously firstly because of this economic model that we have where their wages are getting pushed down. There's also a much broader issue here because even in the NHS, you know, you see often nurses aren't really being paid the amount that they should be. And that's obviously because a lot of this is considered women's work. And because it's considered women's work, it's considered something that they are doing because they, you know, we are naturally caring and emotional and we don't need to be paid to do this because it's in our nature. So you don't need to pay women as much as um, as you would otherwise. Also, I mean, if, when you're looking at, at the social care system, a lot of the work is done by women of color um, who are, again, you know, systematically um, uh, discriminated against in the labor market. So you have all these overlapping issues that conspire to basically mean that this work is systematically undervalued and is is is, is not very well paid, even though, as I said, it is, is demanding and it is difficult. If we did pay care workers better, then I don't think we would be seeing these shortages. And actually, we'd have far higher quality of care. And when you're talking about things like children's social care, that has massive knock-on implications for not just those kids for the rest of their lives, but for the rest of the, the system. Because, you know, kids who have um, grown up, um, you know, within the care sector are far more likely to end up homeless, to end up with multiple kind of overlapping complex needs that mean they're going to have to be cared for in one way or another for the rest of their lives. Like, providing this kind of care early on is so, so important for both individuals and society as a whole. Um, yeah, exactly. And I, I, I think um, that's really important and really clearly um, articulated. You mentioned like the state there. Um, and I wonder what your perspective is on, because obviously it's government that has kind of presided over 
whether it be like deregulation, whether it be um, selling off public services to private companies and allowing them to kind of uh, get away with not being not providing the uh, kind of levels of care that is is necessary. Um, where do you stand on having like a centralized government with the power to regulate and tax corporations in a system set up kind of as it similar to as it is now, but maybe more similar to how it was back in the day around like that them having kind of quite strong state control and kind of buying back um, a lot of those services and it being centralized again versus like collectivism at a local level uh, or autonomous like local communities and kind of social care structures like I wonder where if you if you're taking like a like a classic kind of left wing approach to it you kind of end up with a state that's been failing people for a long time so I was like I just kind of wonder what your perspective is on that yeah, I think that's a really good point. You know, it's not enough just to say we need to go back to the 1970s where you had, yes, more state spending, but ultimately still a fairly centralized approach. I mean, you do need to put pressure on public resources to make sure that people who are doing this work have the basic resources and, in fact, much more extensive resources than they do now that they need um, to do their jobs. There's no getting around that problem. We can't just say, oh, we're just going to organize a response locally and everything will be fine. Yes, people will do that. And it's fantastic that they do, but they need to have resources and they need to have access to our collective resources that are pooled within the state from all our, our tax money. Um, but I think there are, you know, the, the points you raised are really, really important because firstly, you know, it makes sense that social care is provided by local government. Um, but local government, the local state, as well as the national state, both of them are completely undemocratic. Um, and like the average person has not, you know, has not got any avenues to be able to interact with those those bodies and those institutions. Um, so I think, you know, we really need to firstly democratize the state as a whole. This is, I think, now a really central demand actually for the left, it's if you're saying, take things into public ownership, say we're saying, you know, take social care as a whole into public ownership, how are you gonna be running that? Are you gonna be making sure that patients, workers, um, all stakeholders are actually having a voice in how those services are run, or are you just gonna give it to the Department of Health, right? Which isn't necessarily gonna take those, those voices into account. So I think a kind of decentralized, dem democratized approach is really important. I also think that if we're going to keep local authorities having a significant role in this system, then they need to have more powers. They often need to have more fundraising powers, more tax raising powers. We need some level of decentralization of the state as well. I think that's really important um, so that local authorities can meet, uh, can meet local needs. And I think that also brings into that last point that you were talking about, about um, how, you know, ordinary people, charities, uh, cooperative organizations often self-organize to do this work when it's not being done. That isn't something that you want to shut down or shut out. You want to be able to have a system in which uh, local public authorities are working with those organizations and providing the support that they need to do their jobs rather than, as I said, kind of, you know, handing it all over the Department of Health, which will just trample all over those those grassroots efforts. Thanks. Um, Joy, you got anything? Um, so since we're talking about this, hello, Grace. Hi. <laughs> um, since we're talking about the state, um, I was wondering what your take on um, regarding state benefits, such as universal credit. Do you think that that system is working or do you think that something else needs to be put in place? 
The universal credit debate is really interesting because on the one hand, you know, when it was brought in, there were a lot of people who were looking at this from a progressive perspective and thinking this could be good. You know, you're bringing all these different benefits that are complicated, difficult for people to understand, not that intuitive into one uh, monthly payment, right? So the potential for it to be something positive was there. The way that the government has implemented it has, from the very beginning, not just been completely incompetent, it has almost been deliberately designed to harm the most vulnerable people in our society. Um, they obviously, you know, first and foremost, the way it is designed, so the fact that it's paid monthly rather than weekly, which is very difficult for people to manage, mm -hmm. the fact that, um, uh, that you have these inbuilt, unbelievably harsh penalties for people who, for whatever reason, you know, I've heard about people going to funerals and being unable to attend their job center appointments and then getting sanctioned for an unbelievable amount of time, for enough time that means they're going to food banks, they're maybe becoming homeless. The spread of UC is directly, a number of studies have directly linked it to the rise of homelessness in the places that universal credit has been rolled out. That kind of callousness that's just built into the heart of the, the way the thing is designed is utterly appalling. And it's obviously not big enough to allow people to survive when they are out of work or um, obviously, uh, You've also got the problem, the separate problem of the, the payments paid to people who are disabled uh, or who have complex uh, physical and mental health needs. Obviously, that there is now this process um, to get personal independence payments, which is humiliating, difficult, um, and often ends up with people who have very, very severe needs going through this process only to not get the payments that they need out the other side. The entire welfare system, as it's been redesigned under the Conservatives, has become... I mean, it is one of the places actually where perhaps the left hasn't been making enough arguments, but where it, you know, the, the biggest costs of austerity have been imposed. Um, and I think it's now becoming very obvious with the crisis that we're obviously in right now, the coronavirus crisis, where you're going to see many, many more people out of work um, or facing a, a significant loss of income or having to go on statutory sick pay of £95 a week, which is not enough for most people to pay their rent. People are going to start thinking, right, we need to redesign the welfare system because as soon as middle class people are having to potentially rely on the welfare system, then suddenly everyone's going to care, right? Whereas, you know, over the last 10 years, it's been one of those places that the government's thought, oh, it's easy to cut because it only caters for the most vulnerable in society. And that has obviously been a, a total crime and, and has obviously significantly increased the pressure on other areas of the public sector too. It is actually mad, like the, the way in which the government is going to have to be forced to reckon with the realities of its own welfare system and the, the, the impact that it's going to have on people who would otherwise, you know, be protected from it mm -hmm. is nuts. Like, and you can kind of see, I was just watching that Boris Johnson statement. He basically said nothing, but I could see like the fear in his eyes. Mm. You know, like it's kind of crazy. Hopefully it, it forces people to reckon with it. And like, I mean, what do you think of like the idea of a state benefit system anyway like do you think that that is useful like uh, there's a lot of advocacy for universal basic income i think from the right as well as the left yeah um as a way of like you know doing away with benefits or whatever to me it seems like everyone should just be paid it, it especially in this context makes you reckon with all right what do we actually need to survive and you know operate what can be provided yeah. to us and what like what jobs are useful basically no one 
has any useful jobs is what I can figure is like apart from like frontline workers yeah like what do we what do the rest of us need to be doing like really yeah I mean this is such a fascinating question how many of us are going to come out of this crisis thinking what is the point in me going to work anymore when you I know don't do anything this is yeah this is not so this is the kind of David Graeber bullshit jobs argument right yeah. uh that there are so many people who are doing these jobs that just provide little to no um kind of I don't know, they provide a little, yeah, a little <laughs> sense of purpose for, for themselves as well as uh, not much by way of, um, of benefit to society. So, yeah, that could be a really interesting implication. In terms of the kind of UBI argument, I mean, we're definitely going to be seeing more of this, but it is going to, you know, Trump has said, give everyone a thousand pounds, right? I don't necessarily think this is um, a, a kind of emancipatory demand because all you're really doing is kind of, I, I think, it is a, a, a it's progressive, but it also reinforces the individualization that has been at the heart of the kind of erosion of our collectively provided goods for the last 30, 40 years. Um, why are we saying completely get rid of the welfare state, which provides targeted support to people who need it most and give everyone the same amount of money and then, um, you know, potentially also strip away all our, our public services? when you know we could be actually expanding those services expanding the support provided to the vulnerable and rather than saying here's you know i don't know a thousand pounds a month go and spend it how you will if you piss up a wall then that's your own fault you know each to their own uh why why aren't we saying you know free public transport free um a national food service uh all the basic things that you need to survive are provided free at the point of use um on the basis that they are collectively owned and collectively provided public goods that we all invest in and we all draw down from. And that is the basis for me of a much more solidaristic society, a much more kind of, um, uh, I suppose, mutually dependent and, uh, and cooperative society. Uh, whereas, you know, just saying, right, we're in a bit of economic difficulty, give everyone a thousand pounds. That's just the basis for heightening kind of individualization and alienation. And it's actually part of the reason that we got into this mess in the first place. So talking about the kind of uh, like drawing on that and then talking about the uh, ownership of public services, collective ownership, um, collective bargaining power and bringing it back to uh, young people in care. Um, how would a care system, a children's social care system, work if it was designed and run by the people who had experienced it in the first place? And specifically around like ownership model, because I think that's mm -hmm. that's something where I've never really been able to like uh, imagine. Like, all right, so what would that look like if X amount of people are subject to a care order in a certain local authority? What if they had a stake in that? system i was wondering if if you had any ideas on that yeah i mean there are so many different models of ownership that you can look at that you know could provide a more localized and kind of socialized approach to to care um you know, obviously cooperatives is the obvious one where you have um uh either worker cooperatives or um maybe one set up by you know investment by by local individuals or those who are going to be using the service. I think um, given that the people that are using those services probably aren't necessarily going to be able to like, you know, have a stake in the way that you would have in a worker cooperative, someone buying a stake of the company and then getting 
repayments. There are ways of doing that where, for example, you might have like a co-owned um, set of services with the local authority, partly owned by the public sector, maybe partly owned by workers, partly owned by care users. Uh, you can design you know, all different kinds of models of ownership when you're allowed to do so at a local level based on local needs. Um, so I think kind of permitting and encouraging those alternative models of ownership in the care sector is really important. But it's also crucially not just about ownership, also about governance. So who's making the decisions? Um, and I think there are a lot of ways, even under kind of orthodox models of ownership, to incorporate frontline users um, and workers into the organization of those care services. And we don't do that at the moment. It's very hierarchical. Um, and it, yeah, often for that reason doesn't work for those who are on the receiving end. Amazing, thank you so much. Um, yeah, um, so I know we were talking about um, universal credit before. I was wondering, do you think there should be a separate system um, specifically for care leavers? Because universal credit isn't enough for anyone. Mm -hmm. But for people that are way more vulnerable, such as care leavers and um, even young people in care, there needs to be something else put in place. What do you think that could be? That was really interesting. I hadn't actually thought about that before, but it's obviously a really important point. Um, these are some of the most vulnerable people in society. Obviously, they don't have those social support networks that so many of us rely on when we fall on hard times. You know, There are going to be a lot of people who during this crisis are going to go back home to their parents. That's where I am right now. And for people in, in care, that is simply not an option. Um, so it does make sense, definitely, to have more significant payments um, and more significant protections and, and, uh, and security for people, um, both within the care sector and also care leavers. Because obviously care leavers, that's when you start to see some of the big risks emerging around homelessness um, and all sorts of other vulnerabilities. So yeah, having that support, both financial and also actually, I suppose, solidarity. So how are you building networks that allow people in care and care leavers to kind of support one another um, and, and yeah, kind of work with each other to, um, yeah, to kind of solve their, their problems collectively and together. Um, I think that's a really good point and something that, yeah, is definitely worth looking into. And ultimately, we have, I think at the moment, because of this crisis, such an opportunity to actually think about how we redesign all our public services because so many people are going to be using them so many people are going to be using the welfare system so many people are going to be using the nhs and social care like this is actually quite a good point at which to start asking these really fundamental questions about what do we want these services to look like um talking about solidarity shout out to siobhan runs a woman's wellness group at drive forward which is an organization in london who we interviewed who is also just like you know an amazing person sadly it's down to the individuals often to to create those groups rather than them being like you say encouraged by either the state or local authority or whatever um i'm just going to finish up last question um do you think that those political modes of uh like lobby groups and think tanks work to serve the interests of the powerful in general, even the kind of like left-leaning ones that have like big research arms or whatever. Um, and if you do, do you think that there is a kind of like whether there's a political structure that could remedy that or, um, yeah, how, how like I kind of want to know your take on what, like what your perspective is on, on 
how think tanks work, how they serve certain interests over others? Yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of it, again, this question all depends on, firstly, ownership, and secondly, I mean, in the question of, of think tanks, they're mostly charities funding. Um, so a lot of think tanks get their money from big corporations or rich individuals. And when they are getting their money from the, from those people, you know, they will say their research isn't impacted by that, but obviously that is going to have a really significant impact on the kind of research they put out. Um, some of the more like progressive think tanks get more money from say grants or um, from uh, like crowdfunding is another way of doing it today that um, that makes it slightly more more progressive. But I think you know there are also if you can think about alternative models for organizing the care sector, you can think about alternative models for organizing think tanks. Like there is absolutely no reason why a think tank shouldn't be a worker co-op, for example. Um, you know, there's a big problem at the moment with um, you know, uh, lobbying regulation, basically meaning that think tanks that um, say anything political can be hauled in front of the Charities Commission, right? So, you know, any support for, for example, the Labour Party or even for the Conservative Party can put a think tank in quite, you know, significant trouble. If they were a work cooperative or, you know, had a different kind of model of ownership, then that might not be such an issue. And obviously then you're responsive to one another, rather than some trustees that are, you know, potentially from all different areas of business and finance and whatever. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, it's all about ownership and governance. Uh, and if you can start to think about changing those things, although it's not something that I can imagine most think tanks doing at this particular point in time, because a lot of them are really stretched for funding. But, you know, in an ideal world, maybe. Yeah, I mean, like governance, again, like it's the same with charities, right? Like. There's, it seems to be like they, they're self-sustaining. They're kind of, their constant search for funding means that they have to like produce a certain kind of amount of outcomes or like produce something that is influential or blah, blah, blah. Like there's a, there's a, a like a serious kind of uh, like glitch in the, in the, in the way that they are, the way they function i think that kind of yeah that like makes almost defeats the purpose of them um joy unless you've got anything to add uh thank you so much for coming on thank you thanks for having me thanks grace um i really appreciate it uh and yeah, love solidarity and all, all the work that you guys are doing thank you so much um and it's been really useful to give a kind of overview of how you know the private sector has influenced the care system so i really appreciate it take care thank you for listening to transforming care Transforming Care is an autonomous media production hosted by myself, Jake Lake, and Joy Milani. You can find us at autonomousmedia.org, on Twitter at media underscore autonomy, and on Instagram at autonomous underscore media underscore London underscore. They're long, I know. I hope you enjoyed the show and tune in next week.